Hello, this is Gene Wilhelm, and today we'll be studying the readings for the 12th Sunday in Ordinary Time in Cycle 80. Uh, they have to do a lot with what is the price of discipleship. And uh, in general, if you look at Sirach, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 to 6, and Sirach may, may be uh, called Ecclesiastic Cuss in your translation of the Bible, and it says that it begins, My son, if you come forward to serve the Lord, remain in justice, in fear, and prepare yourself for a temptation. Or in some translations, it's called an ordeal. Set your heart right and steadfast. Incline your ear and receive my words of understanding. Do not be hasty in time of calamity. Await God's patience. Cling to him. Do not depart from him, that you may be wise in all your ways. And he goes on, and it, it ends up saying that, that God will take care of us. And so what we have is uh, we are all called in one way or another to serve God. And it, sometimes it's difficult to understand what that call is. And it may be even more difficult to answer if we believe that in answering God's call, uh, we are going to face something that is not pleasant and this is really the case with Jeremiah. Uh, the reading, first reading is from Jeremiah 20, verses 10 through 13. But to understand Jeremiah, let's take a look at his call. And this is from Jeremiah uh, 1, 4 to 8. It says, The word of Yahweh came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you came to birth, I consecrated you. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. I said, and this is I am Isaiah, uh, Jeremiah talking, I said, Ah, ah, Lord, you see, I don't know how to speak. I am only a child. But Yahweh replied, do not say I am only a child. And I'll, I will uh, interject here that for me, uh, do not say you're an old man. Do not, do not offer any excuse. It says, for you must go to all whom I send you and whatever say whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of confronting them for I am with you to rescue you. This is what Yahweh declares. Now, the, the other pro prophet that, that we see in the scriptures that is so reluctant to answer God's call is, is uh, Jonah. And, and, it's, and that's from Jonah 1, 1 to 3. And it says, The word of the Yahweh was addressed to Jonah, son of Amittai. Up, he said, Go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to them that their wickedness has forced itself upon me. Jonah set out, about running away from Yahweh and going to Tarshish. Now, the, why would he do this? The Ninevites were a very fierce people who were known for their, their, their brutal, brutal ways of dealing with people whom they didn't care for. And, and Jonah knew what he was going to be walking into if he answered God's call. The only uh, prophet that we really have in the, in the Old Testament that was really willing was Isaiah. And if you go to Isaiah 6... Verses 8 and 9, he, Isaiah says, I then heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. And then God tells him to go. What, what we have in, in, in the first reading, Jeremiah says, I hear whisperings of many. And that, that whisperings is really evil reports, de defamation, and so forth. Terror on every side. And if you look at Psalm 5, uh, 31, uh, verse 13, you see that Jeremiah isn't the first one to experience this. 
in Psalm 31, 13, David says, All I hear is slander, terror, wherever I turn, as they plot together against me, scheming to take my life. And so this is, this is what is to be expected. And Jeremiah knew this when he was called initially. He was making excuses, but he really didn't want to do this. If you look at Jeremiah's uh, ministry, he suffered many things. I think it's in Jeremiah, uh, or somewhere in Jeremiah, he's dropped into the cistern uh, because people just didn't want to hear the message he had because he was telling them what God was saying, that everything wasn't all right, that, that they really need to reform their ways. So what he says, terror on every side, denounce, let us denounce him. This is what all those who were my friends, the people with whom you had a good relationship will maybe turn against you if you become one with the Lord and you start speaking his word. But it says, but the Lord is with me like a mighty champion. So God's there. But it doesn't always seem like he's there. Look at Jesus on the cross at the very end. He was quoting all of Psalm 20, uh, 22, I believe it is. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But in the end, at the end of that psalm, we see that God rescues the person who feels abandoned by God. So when we feel abandoned by God, it is a very normal thing to happen. And we, we shouldn't feel as though it's not something that's happened to people before, or that you're alone, or that you're being set out uh, apart as someone who God is trying to, to, uh, to punish for answering his call, or trying to catch you at something that you're not capable of doing. Because if you look at, if you, God is always there for you. And, and in Zechariah 4, 6b says, not by might and not by power, but by my spirit. So it's by God's Spirit that we are enabled to conquer all the impediments in our lives to be able to follow the path that God has sent us upon. It says, it goes on to say, they are all those who were my friends are on watch, the watch for any misstep of mine. So what they're looking for a way to trap him. Sounds like a lot of things that we we see. Uh, in, on the national scene here in the United States at this point in time, that each side is politically is attempting to find some reason to uh, point out that the the opposite the opposition is not doing what they think they should be doing, and that the people are saying the religious leaders of that time were saying perhaps he will be trapped, and we can prevail and take our vengeance on him. We are there, and God. God is the one that's supposed to be testing us. In Jeremiah eleven twenty, he says, Yahweh Sabaoth, whose judgment is right, tester of motives and thoughts, I shall see your vengeance, for I have revealed my cause to you. So he's looking for, in that passage, uh, Jeremiah is looking for God to come to his aid and prove him right. But his persecutors here are trying to to find a way that they can put him to, to, to shame and confusion and get get rid of him, deride him, uh, make him look like a fool. And then Jeremiah says that in their failure, they will be put to utter shame, to lasting and unforgettable confusion. Again, confusion, uh, typically the word that is translated confusion is Babel, uh, from which we get the word Babylon. I mean, Babylon means confusion, So, and that's where the languages were confused. 
So it's, it's, a, it's uh, that, but confusion also in this case means disgrace. So just what, have, what is going on there? Uh, let me look, read to you from Isaiah 50, verses 7 through 9. This is what uh, Isaiah has to say when he faced opposition. For the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been confounded. Therefore I have set my face like flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is my adversary? Let him come to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them who wear out will pardon me. Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. A moth will eat them up. Again, that's Isaiah fifty verses seven through nine. Isaiah is saying, I know I'm going to face all these things, but in the end, God will come to my aid. And so, uh, Jeremiah is saying, I've entrusted my cause to you. Uh, for He is depending on God, but he is, he's, still, he's still not sure exactly what's going on. In his, in his humanness, he feels frail. In his humanness, he feels abandoned. In his spirit, somehow, he feels that God is there, and he has a struggle. But in the end, he says, sing to the Lord, praise the Lord. He has rescued the life of the poor from the power of the wicked. And that word praise there is hallel, which, from which we get hallelujah or hallelujah. And so God is with him, and God is going to do what is necessary for him. Let's look at the gospel next, because this is Jesus is, uh, talking to his disciples. Uh, and this is from Matthew 10, 26 through 33. <coughs> Jesus says, <coughs> pardon me, Jesus said to the twelve, fear no one. And what you're going to see in this gospel is there three times he talks about fear. He says, fear no one. He says, do not be afraid. And again, do not be afraid. So he says, fear no, no one. So why, why would the apostles be f afraid? This, this is in the context of Jesus sending them off. It's, it's his commission. The commission is uh, about saying the person, the person, this process that we're reading here is what are the con personal consequences of what you do and in 1 through 16 of chapter 10 it's the commission and in 17 through 25 it talks about persecution and in 26 through 36 it's talking about or 33 it's talking about fearless and open speech so he's talking about fearless and open speech but this whole chapter 9 uh, 10 from 1 to 33 is talking about what a disciple can experience. It would be very interesting for you maybe to go back and read all of that to get the context of what Jesus is talking about. But fear no one. But, but let's look at the apostles. Uh, there are several times that they have feared him. They will, will have feared him uh, in this particular case. And the fear is something that, that they seem to have frequently. Uh, if you remember at the Transfiguration, which is in Luke, uh, the apostles Peter, James, and John were there, and they were afraid when they saw the light and heard the voice saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. But subsequent to this passage here, you see in Matthew 14, 25 through 27, 
when Jesus was walking on the water, and but the disciples saw him walking in the sea, they were terrified, saying, it's a ghost. And they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, take heart, it is I, have no fear. What, we, what the fear usually comes down to is that we are afraid because we think we've been abandoned. We do not believe that Jesus is there with us. We've already talked about that passage about the transfiguration, so we don't need to touch on that one again because that was another one I had here. And let's look at Matthew 28. This is after Jesus' resurrection. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Hail! And they all came up to him at his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and they will, and there they will see me. So you see the fear there. That you see the fear in John chapter 20 where Jesus comes to the door and Jesus says to them, that, you know, be not, do not, peace be with you. So what, what, the peace is the opposite of fear, is it not? Fear is doubt of what is going to be happening. And so we, you see that that's there. Now what Jesus comes up and says after, don't be afraid. So why not be afraid? Nothing is concealed that will not be revealed. So even if someone is persecuting us in private, it will be made public at some point in time. The other side of this, it's something that could put real fear into us that all of our secret sins will be found out. But he says that nothing, no, nor there's no, everything's going to be revealed, and there's no secret that will not be known. What I say to you in darkness, speak in the light. So probably what that, what that may be referring to here is that uh, could be on two levels. One could be that a lot of the teaching that Jesus gave to the, his um, inner circle was done in the evening after he'd done a full day of preaching to other people. Uh, but it could be, uh, also that the the darkness that, that is trying to overpower the light of the world, Jesus, the light of the world, is he's speaking to with that surrounding of darkness, but, but they're supposed to speak in the light. When they're in the light of Jesus Christ, or when we're in the light of Jesus Christ, we should be speaking plainly and openly. It says, what I say to you, speak in the light. What you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. So, what, what maybe is, is sort of the secret underground church, if you look at, uh, like in John Paul II's life and in, and in many of the communist countries, uh, priests had to be trained in secret because the seminaries were closed down. But they take like John Paul II. John Paul II spoke openly and fearlessly in Poland and throughout the world, uh, what he had learned in secret. And, do not, and then Jesus goes on and says, and do not be afraid of those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. So somebody, you may be martyred, but you will have eternal life. Don't be afraid of the ones that can kill your body 
be afraid of those that will, will bring you eternal death rather than those who will, get, will take your mortal, your, your earthly life. Don't be afraid of them. Be afraid of those who will rob you or cause you to lose eternal life. Rather, be afraid of those who can, can, can destroy both body, soul and body in Gehenna. Now, he's talking about physical death and spiritual death. And he's also talking about the second resurrection here, or the general resurrection that will be at the end of time where the body and the soul are reunited to, to be with Jesus forever in eternity or in hell forever. Uh, those of you who have heard me talk before realize that Gehenna is significant in that it was considered by the Jewish people a place of eternal damn damnation. And the reason for that was that originally Gehenna is a, in a valley, I think it's on the southwest side of Jerusalem, where uh, in days past, uh, people would sacrifice their children to Moloch. They would burn them there uh, to Moloch. So it was a place of pagan sacrifice. But what then after, uh, after afterwards, it became the city dump. And there was a perpetual fire smoldering in Gehenna. So this is when you read Gehenna in the New Testament, it's talking about hell. And the reason it's talking about hell is it's talking about the history of Gehenna, which is it's the, this valley where originally was human sacrifice, sacrifice of children uh, burned for Molech, one of the pagan gods, and then later it became the city dump. So we need to be afraid of those who will put us in the, the eternal dump of the city of God, which is hell is that, it, hell is Gehenna. It's, that, it's the dumping ground for all the refuge that, that should not be in the city of God. We don't want to be among those. And so what, what we have next is that uh, we have that uh, says, are not too spiritual? Sparrows sold for a small coin. So it don't people consider sparrows next to worthless? You you can buy them. Anybody can buy a sparrow because almost everybody has enough money to buy a sparrow if they wanted to. Uh, so don't consider yourself worthless. It is. It's important that we understand that we have worth in God's eyes. And it says, and yet not one of them falls to the ground without God's knowledge. And that, let's go back to Matthew six twenty six, where Jesus is talking about being totally dependent upon His provision. Remember, that's the passage that ends up with six thirty three. It says. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be given unto you as well. And then 634 says, Do not worry about for tomorrow, for tomorrow will take care of itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. But in Matthew 626, he says, Look at the birds of the sky. They do not sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they are? As a matter of fact, as a child of God, we are worth a lot more than a, a, a small coin. We are priceless because we are God's children. So consider yourself worthy, 
worthy of God's love. Consider yourself loved by God. God will give you all that you need, not maybe not all that you want. You know, in, in uh, the Jerusalem Bible, Psalm 23, verse 1 says, Yahweh is my shepherd, I shall not lack. So what that scripture is saying is that when we are under God's provision, with God, if Jesus is our shepherd, he's going to provide for us all that we need. And some of the translations say want, and that want in the ancient sense means need. Uh, in our modern world, we think that God should supply everything that we want, everything that we desire. But God is going to provide all that we need to, uh, to be able to do the things that he wants us to do. And it says, and yet not one falls to the ground without your father's knowledge. So God knows everything. Even all the hairs of your head are counted. For those of you who are in my age bracket, perhaps it's a lot easier for God to count the hairs on your head than it was when you were young because he has so many, so few of them left. But God still can count the hairs regardless of how many hairs you have on your head. And for you men that, that uh, have a full beard and, and whatever, he can count all of those hairs as well. He knows everything about you, even the minutest detail as to one hair on your head. And he knows them, he counts them, and he considers them of value. So it says, do not be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Uh, we, are the per we are that pearl of great price that, that God, that Jesus finds in the field. And Jesus was, he, Jesus found us in that field. And he, in, in eternity, he found us in that field and he sacrificed everything for us so that he could have us the pearl of great price. Then he says, everyone who acknowledges me before others, I will acknowledge before my heavenly father. And so he's going to take care of us. And he says, whoever denies me, I will deny before my father. You don't want him to deny you on the last day when, all of the, when judgment is given. Let's take a quick look at the second reading. As usual, the second reading, we are, we are going through the book of Romans right now. Uh, and the book of Romans, we're in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 15. It says, Through one man sin entered the world, and through sin death. The, the note in the Jerusalem Bible on that is that uh, it's this note G in the Jerusalem Bible for uh, Romans 5. It says, sin makes a division from God. This separation is death. Death, spiritual and eternal. Physical death is a symbol of it. And then it refers us to Wisdom 2, 24, and Hebrews 6, 1, note B. If you look at Psalm 51, 5, this is not a new concept. David in Psalm 51, where he was getting his lament for his sin against uh, Uriah the Hittite and taking his wife and having him killed, he says, remember, I was born guilty, a sinner from the moment of conception. So we are sinners from the beginning, and it is by baptism that we are made righteous and pure. It says, so that sin came, sin came into the world to all men. And this happened, it says, for up to this time, there was no law. So it's not that 
It's not the law that makes sin. The sin is there regardless of whether we see it or not. Uh, things, things like germs and so forth were not discovered until relatively recently in the history of humankind, but they were always there. Uh, everything that we have, all the processes, the medical processes that we have, uh, certain elements in this things were there. Uh, stars are seen in the sky that we've not, they've always been there, but we haven't seen them. But the law was, the, was not there. But it says even, but death reigned from Adam to Moses, even though those who did not sin. Death was there. The, the, prom, the, the death is a consequence of the sin of our first mother, father and mother. But after the pattern of the trespass, but the gift is not like the transgression. The gift, it's a charisma. It's a gratuity. It's a favor. It's something we don't deserve. It says, if forth of my transgression of the one, many died. And transgression is violation. So if the violation, Adam and Eve violated God's law and God's trust, uh, I'm sorry, how much more did the grace of God and the gracious gift of one man, Jesus Christ, overflow for many? So Jesus took away that. We inherited sin and sinfulness from Adam and Eve, but we are called to something bigger because Jesus came Jesus was big enough to be able to reverse that whole process, to give us back eternal life. And the gracious gift uh, is, is God's graciousness, his charis, his generosity. And it talks overflow to the many. And that overflow is, think, think of a bucket that you're filling with water, and the water just overflows. It's, it's, it's superabound is what it means, to be in excess. You've got more than you need. God, whatever Jesus has done for us is, is, is so abundant that it's for everybody for all eternity. And we just don't see that. Uh, so I'm going to c- conclude here uh, with just reminding you that God wants you to do something for him. And he's called you. And he's probably called you many times. And you've probably heard the call. And you've probably, some of you or most of us have done some of the things God's act, asked us to do. And other times we think we're not worthy, we think we're not capable, uh, we're afraid of the consequences, and Jesus tells us the consequences are going to be there. That's what the, the, the church's readings tell us today with the gospel and the first reading. And we just need to understand that God will provide for us everything that we need, and we will be all right in the very end. I thank you so much for listening, and you can find... Uh, printed materials about this uh, on my blog post, and I hope to talk to you again real soon.